There's an old saying on Wall Street that nothing happens on Wall Street until the lines of fear and greed cross. And in the case of Twitter, we're rapidly heading towards the crossing of the lines between fear and greed. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, December 13th. Today, Tara Palmieri joins me to talk about the rumor mill on Capitol Hill, specifically the buzz that a so-called unity speaker might emerge if Kevin McCarthy can't close the deal on his bid for the speakership. Is there a moderate Republican out there who could win votes from Republicans and Democrats in the House to become speaker? Tara is here with a reality check on the gossip. And later on, Bill Cohan is here to discuss a bizarre financial silver lining in Elon Musk's self-sabotaging mismanagement of Twitter. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of Powers That Be. Happy Tuesday, Powers That Be listeners. It is just one more day in Kevin McCarthy's winter of discontent. For more on that, I'm joined by Tara Palmieri. How you doing, Tara? Good. Thanks for having me, Peter. It feels like Groundhog Day here. You come on once a week. We talk about Kevin McCarthy. Does he have the votes? Does he not? I'm kind of going to skip that today because I feel like not much has changed. But in the uh, vacuum, uh, the, the power vacuum, I guess, right now, you could say, there's a lot of fantastical chatter. One of the things that we kind of knocked down last week was the idea that Republicans could maybe bring in an outside speaker, that is someone who is not an elected member of Congress and tap them to be speaker in the absence of them being unable to figure out whether it's McCarthy or someone else. That seems pretty ridiculous. That's not going to happen. But another sort of thought bubble has come up recently, which is the idea of a unity speaker. And this concept would basically unfold in this way. Because of the right and because of the MAGA people and the Republican caucus, no one can agree who's going to lead the Republican Party in the House. Kevin McCarthy might not be the guy. And then you would have someone like a centrist, like Don Bacon from Nebraska, stepping in. He's a moderate and saying, well, if you guys over there on the right can't figure it out, I'm going to step in here and be a unity speaker. And that would mean I will work with Democrats too. And you would get a bunch of votes from Democrats and a bunch of votes from Republicans. And somehow that would add up to 218. And that person would be speaker. Does that seem plausible to you at all? No. Um, <laughs> That's what I was going for. <laughs> I floated this actually with Tina a few weeks ago because actually it was McCarthy allies that were telling me this, this fear. And I think for them, they want to get it out there that the Democrats could choose who the speaker is and you're handing this to the Democrats. Like this is sort of their desperate attempt to try to gain control of the situation. I even reached out to a moderate Democrat to ask him and he's like, yeah, I guess we would be maybe open to talking, but like probably not going to happen. The Republicans who vote with a Democrat for a unity leader, they would probably be primaried. And so would the Democrats. And it would be really hard. Uh, I mean, maybe you can go home and sell it as a Democrat and just say like, hey, at least we have a say in who our devil is and who we get to pick. 
But like the idea that too many hijinks will, you know, leave the Republicans vulnerable to Democrats is something that the McCarthy team has been pushing for a while. And I think the more we talk about this unity candidate idea, that's actually what they want you to talk about because it will terrify the House Freedom Caucus into place. This is one of those things that feels like it falls firmly in the MSNBC viewer bucket of moderate slash liberal fantasies that will never come true, i.e. Liz Cheney should run against Donald Trump. And that's just ridiculous. There is just no constituency in that case in the Republican Party for a patriotic moderate who's standing up for norms and principles in the Constitution. Just doesn't exist. And the idea that someone like Fred Upton could step in and marshal enough votes among Democrats and Republicans is just a a bipartisan fantasy that maybe could have been possible in like 2006. But, you know, we're so divided and partisan now. And like you said, there probably aren't even enough Democrats in the House who would sign up to vote for that. Yeah, I just can't imagine the squad would get behind that. It is a pipe dream. It's in this weird space where it's like, both fantasized by like maybe this MSNBC crowd, but also being pushed aggressively by McCarthy world (laughs) as something that could happen and may happen unless the Freedom Caucus gets in line. You know, if anybody really who is in the house could maybe be that moderate consensus speaker would be Brian Fitzpatrick, but he said he doesn't want to do that. He said he's squarely behind McCarthy. And again, like I just... I don't even think moderates could make that vote without a primary challenge. So Tara, like one question I have for you. I mean, I mentioned McCarthy's winter of discontent. We don't know if he has the votes, but what is going on? You said his team are like putting out these distracting rumors as a threat to the Freedom Caucus. Like, well, if you don't sign up for Kevin, here comes someone else that you're not going to like. How does the whipping process for McCarthy work right now? Is he just like calling numbers all the time, all day long? And then making sure that Donald Trump stays in his hole and doesn't attack him. (laughs) Pretty much the Trump holes being managed by one of his good friends. I know that Um, they're sending letters, the Freedom Caucus right now, demanding certain things. It's not the five no's, it's the others who are asking for, you know, committees and they're asking for rules and they're asking for all sorts of things. So there's like a back and forth that's going on right now. He's like accepting these letters. He's calling people. He's trying to like figure out what the real numbers are what is possible. Honestly, like the longer they stay in Washington, the Freedom Caucus, the more likely, you know, they're able to strategize, huddle, demand more extractions from Kevin McCarthy. They can make more statements on the record saying they don't support his leadership. It's like, it's all bad for him. And they have to stay because they're fighting against a either omnibus or a continuing resolution, which are just like spending bills. So actually, the longer they fight against this and the longer that these members stay in Congress, the more likely that there will be more mischief and hell raising that McCarthy has to deal with. And the more they'll be demanding him. Best case scenario would be they all go back to their districts and he can like take a breather and call them all separately and they can't all like huddle. You just have to have such a metabolism if you're speaker or leader of your caucus to just spend all day on the phone. And I just don't like talking on the phone that much. So good Lord, he must really want it. Tara, thanks for joining us as always. Thanks, Peter. 
When we come back, Ben Landy asked Bill Cohan, what's the financial silver lining for Elon Musk after his mismanagement of Twitter? Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with Bill Cohan to talk about possibly my favorite Elon Musk theory, which is that he is deliberately sabotaging Twitter or perhaps not deliberately sabotaging Twitter, but just being a terrible manager of this business that he's bought and that that might actually save Elon from his creditors on Wall Street. So, um, Bill, I want to get into all of that. But first of all, I'm just curious, have you seen these videos going around of Elon getting booed at a Dave Chappelle show? I haven't seen the video, Ben, but I read about it on Twitter. He appeared at Dave Chappelle's San Francisco show and uh, got booed. It's a little bit hard to watch. I mean, Elon tweeted that actually, technically, this is his term, technically it was 10% boos, 90% cheers. And then he followed it up by saying, it's almost as if I offended the SF woke crowd or the unhinged leftists. And like this whole thing is sort of stupid, but to me it was sort of illustrative of how Elon has managed Twitter since capitulating to buying it all those months ago. He's surrounded by yes men. He's getting bad feedback on bad business decisions. His ideas have been poorly implemented. And now he's lashing out like he's a political martyr. And when he has this sort of um, first interaction with reality facing a crowd in the real world, he is getting a a sort of a, a taste of actually how unpopular a lot of those decisions have been. Part of it might be that he appeared on stage in San Francisco, where, of course, Twitter is based and where he's fired more than half the workforce. So... It's quite possible that there might be some lingering resentment towards him in the community. Maybe he hasn't been a good steward of the brand and the company uh, since he's owned it. I'm sure the people who go to see Dave Chappelle in person are not ones that are going to be big Elon Musk fans. I would hazard that he was um, betting on the opposite, that the Dave Chappelle fans are sort of as anti-woke as Chappelle himself and that he would have a welcoming environment there. I guess not. But Bill, let's get into it. Explain to me how Elon could possibly benefit from driving down the value of Twitter or hurting the expectations that he's going to be able to pay back all of this debt he took on to buy the company. How does that sort of potentially benefit him? There's an old saying on Wall Street, uh, Ben, that nothing happens on Wall Street until the lines of fear and greed cross. In the case of Twitter, we're rapidly heading towards the crossing of the lines between fear and greed. You know, his banks had provided him with $13 billion of financing in a normally functioning capital markets. Uh, They would have syndicated that debt off, as they call it. It's senior secured debt secured by the assets of Twitter. Normally, they would have syndicated that debt off to investors all around the world, and that would not be the bank's problem anymore. But because of the Fed's policy pivots, that have gone on since they committed to the debt in April. Interest rates have ratcheted up dramatically. So the banks decided rather than sell their debt into that market and perfect what is probably, you know, maybe they could sell it for 50 cents on the dollar. So that would mean they'd have to perfect a six and a half billion dollar loss, which they do not want to do at this particular moment. They've decided to hold on to the debt and hope for a better day. Uh, sometime next year when they can sell it off and they won't have to take that loss. So the first thing is sort of like a macroeconomic issue where there's like a cap on the interest rate of the debt, which there's a limit on how much interest rate they can charge Twitter for that debt. And so the marketing of that debt in the market, there's a gulf between that capped rate 
and what it should be uh, if they were going to sell it off to investors. And so they'd have to, you know, as I said, perfect that discount if they sold it. So, so that probably would be happening. And that was happening in the market in other deals, including, you know, Citrix, which has now been called Shitrix and could be happening with uh, a deal for Tenneco, uh, Auto Parts Business and Nielsen. So th- there's trouble in the market for high yield loans at the moment. Then there's the operational disaster that is unfolding um, at Twitter when you fire whatever it is, half to two thirds of the workforce and you piss off all the advertisers and a lot of the users get pissed off and leave and whatever. The company was theoretically making about a billion dollars in EBITDA. Who knows what that number is today, but they're going to have to pay something like 600 million of uh, interest in April and the cash flow of the company isn't going to be there to pay for it, which is usually how it works with an LBO. Unless Elon wants to go into his pocket and pay that interest, then there could be uh, potentially right out of the gate an interest payment default, which is enough of a default that the banks could put the company into involuntary bankruptcy and start a bankruptcy process that might or might not result in Elon losing control of the company. Now, there are and many interim steps. Assuming the banks aren't just totally pissed off at him right now, as they would be. I mean, if I were one of his bankers at Morgan Stanley, I wouldn't want to even look at the guy anymore or listen to him, let alone try to negotiate a deal with him. I'd be trying to sell that debt off to the highest bidder. I mean, he could try to negotiate some sort of amend and extend deal with the banks where they amend the loan documents to maybe pay a higher rate of interest and extend the maturities, maybe give them some sort of interest rate holiday. That could all happen. And, you know, maybe there's a way that they're, you know, talking about of Elon getting a margin loan on his Tesla stock and using the proceeds to either pay off the banks or buy the bank debt or do something. That whole thing is insanity, if you ask me. Or he could just be, uh, you know, driving this thing sufficiently into the ground, at least with his words and actions, that the smartest thing the banks could do and the smartest thing Elon could do would be to buy the bank debt from them at whatever, 30, 40, 50 cents on the dollar and be done with the banks and throw another $6 billion into this cesspool and not have to worry about bankruptcy. Right. So Elon could, in theory, go out and buy the debt himself at a discount. He's driven down the value of this company. Now it's actually cheaper for him to buy it himself. And the banks presumably are thinking, well, we can get rid of this at 50 cents on the dollar, 40 cents on the dollar, whatever. That's better than either not getting repaid at all or having to deal with this guy anymore or carrying this debt on our books until we're able to get rid of it at a, at a reasonable price. And the Fed isn't going to let them carry it on their books you know, at par much longer. I mean, I don't know what that process is actually like, but I'm sure those discussions have begun where the Fed is saying, oh, you've got, you're listing this debt at par hundred cents on the dollar. We all know it's not worth hundred cents. So you better either sell it and get rid of it and take your losses or market to market and, you know, cut it in half. Again, if I were advising Elon, I would say, oh my God, you're such a moron for doing this deal in the first place. This is a totally self-inflicted wound. I can't believe you've done this. Not only did you buy a company you should never have had anything to do with, you've also destroyed half the value you had built up in Tesla. Aside from the fact that you're a total moron, okay, now that you've done this, the smartest thing you can do is keep this tirade of absurdity up, make the banks crazy, thinking that you're going to, you know, just continue to destroy this thing and that the best thing from their 
point of view is to sell you their debt at some huge discount, you know, 40 cents on the dollar, 50 cents on the dollar, as I say, when the lines of fear and greed cross. In other words, they're so fearful that this guy is a madman and may drive this thing down to zero. And then they lose 100 cents on the dollar, by the way, or close to it, or they sell it now and get out at 40 or 50 cents on the dollar and call it just a day and be done with this guy. So from the bank's perspective, the fear thing is really ratcheting up. And from his perspective, he needs to get rid of these banks so that they don't sell that debt to like Apollo or some other, you know, savvy, distressed debt buyer who's going to end up holding up Elon to get closer to 100 cents on the dollar because they play with fire or they take control of the company in and throw it into an inf- a voluntary bankruptcy and then he loses control of the company uh, anyway to Mark Rowan at Apollo. You know, the best option for Elon now, you know, if you would just listen to me, is to continue this ridiculous bad-mouthing campaign, make all the banks scared to death of you, and then offer them to buy it at 40 cents on the dollar, buy as, everything you can, certainly more than 50% of the debt at 40 cents on the dollar, and then you don't have to worry about an involuntary bankruptcy or losing control of the company of the banks. And then you can just like throw good money after bad and just continue your silliness, whatever it is that you have on plan to do to Twitter, and then at least you know, the financial risk of the deal will be at least all on your balance sheet or your income statement at the moment. And you don't have to worry about some hostile third party coming in and wresting control of this away from you because they can and will do that if they get control of this debt. I was going to say before, Bill, this this reminds me a little bit of the producers, except instead of producing a Broadway show about Nazi Germany, instead of a springtime for Hitler. You've got Elon accusing people at his own company of being pedophiles and ranting about the woke mind virus. Bill, you've, you've seen around corners throughout this entire saga. So just to, to end this today, what do you expect to happen? I mean, you sort of put forward this theory that this is one sort of exit for Elon. Do you think that's actually likely to happen? I mean, is he, is he sort of smart enough to do it? Does he even really want the company? Obviously, he's not talking to me. I I don't want to talk to him. You know, I know he's dumped some Twitter files on some journalists. I'm wondering if he were ever to, you know, like approach me, I would say, just please get away from me. I don't want anything to do with this. So I I don't really want to talk to him, but I wish he would at least read what I'm writing in Puck. I don't think he's getting this message. I can't imagine he's gone through all of this only to lose control of it to Mark Rowan at Apollo or some other smart, distressed investor, which, believe me, is exactly what will happen if those banks who really control everything now, if they sell their debt and more than 50% of it to a Mark Rowan or some other smart and savvy, distressed investor, Elon will lose control of this company unless he just continues to shell $1.2 billion of interest payments a year out to the banks uh, so that there is no event of default. Perhaps this is like chump change for him, even if he's like, you know, now the second or third or fourth richest guy. Maybe he's just going to continue to throw good money after bad. But if he were smart financially, which, you know, I think he must be on some level. I mean, he is once upon a time the world's richest guy. Then he's got to take this next step, which everyone will think is brilliant, by the way. And he will be hailed as like a financial genius, which is like something he could use at the moment. 
you know, he'll still be stuck with his operational problems. But if he just appointed a real CEO, then he could be done with that and go back to what he should be doing, spending all of his time on, which is Tesla, which is where his 99% of his fortune is. So I'm not exactly sure what the guy is all about, but there's a pretty easy answer here uh, if you would only listen to somebody who's, you know, objective and telling him what to do. If you're a friend of Elon, share this podcast with him. Bill, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.